writing about the early church. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, brought the money, and put it at the apostles' feet. Let's, uh, let's pray this morning, shall we? Lord, we're grateful for uh, the truth of the reality that we've just sung. That through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, that we have victory in Jesus. Lord, we have victory over the penalty of sin. That when we put our faith in Jesus, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And we have the hope of eternal life with you. We thank you that there's victory over the power of sin. Uh, that sin no longer needs to reign in us, but we can have victory over uh, sin in our life. And Lord, someday, as we've just sung about, um, we will have uh, experience uh, victory and in your presence, and uh, we thank you for that. Lord, I pray that you would uh, open up our hearts and minds now to your word. Lord, may the Spirit of God take the word of God and, and do um, his work in our lives. Lord, we all bring um, individual uh, stuff through these doors this morning. Lord, some of us are rejoicing, some of us are feeling sorrow, uh, some of us are, are conflicted. Lord, we thank you that we can uh, come to you and we can bring our burdens and our praises to you. Lord, help us to encourage one another today. Help us to love each other well, and we will thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in the book of Acts, and so we're journeying through the book of Acts, and uh, let's uh, just do a little bit of a review, because uh, Dr. Luke wrote the book of Acts, and it picks up with Jesus making post-resurrection appearances. So we're right after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and in Acts chapter 1, Jesus makes his last post-resurrection appearance. He's ready to ascend to heaven, and he gives his disciples and apostles some instructions don't leave Jerusalem, but I want you to wait here for what the Father promised. And what the Father promised was the coming of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus ascends to heaven, and then for 10 days, there's 120 believers. They're meeting in an upper room. They are praying, and they're taking care of some unfinished business. They elect an apostle to take the place of Judas Iscariot. His name was Matthias. And then Acts chapter 2 comes. Uh, the birth of the church, uh, the day of Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit comes, and there's there's tongues of fire that rest over each of those believers. There's sounds of wind, and the apostles are able to speak uh, God's word in a different language. And as people are gathered around for the celebration of Pentecost, they're hearing these apostles speak in their own tongue. And the church is born as Peter gives that Pentecostal sermon uh, in Acts chapter 2, and 3,000 people become followers of Jesus. 
And then we move to Acts chapter uh, 3, and we discover that Peter and John um, are going up to the, the temple courts to, to pray, and they end up uh, healing a lame beggar that's there, and it creates all sorts of attention. And uh, Peter says, hey, this, we didn't do this in our strength. This is through the power of Jesus. And um, that created a, a, a commotion, and actually... Peter's sermon was interrupted by the temple guard, and they end up in in, in jail overnight. Uh, the religious leaders say, hey, no more talking about Jesus. And Peter says, hey, we, we can't help but speak and preach about the name of Jesus. Well, that kind of brings us to Acts chapter 4, and uh, we're going to look at uh, verses 23 through 36, and uh, marks of a great church. So what characterizes a great church? Through our American lens and value system, most people evaluate churches with three Bs. Bodies, how many people are there, the building, the size of the building, and bucks or budget. That's our American lens of how we um, define a great church. But that's not necessarily how Acts and the Bible describes a great church. So last... uh, a week ago, Friday, uh, when we had my mom's funeral service in Grand Rapids, uh, Calvary Church is a very large, large church. She, if you're going on 96 through Grand Rapids, you get close to the Beltline, you, you can see it um, off on the side, right by uh, I-96. So between uh, the funeral service and our luncheon, we had a little time. The, the service was in a, a chapel that is about the size of our auditorium. But I had four grandsons there, and I wanted to show them the main auditorium. I said, hey, guys, come with me down this hallway. And we walked down the hallway, and then I opened the doors, and there's this humongous auditorium. Probably seats 2,000, maybe maybe a few more than that. And they're looking around, and uh, they actually end up on the platform and kind of looking out. And Luke, our nine-year-old, who always says what he's thinking, he goes, Grandpa! He says, your whole church would fit, like, right in this little section. Like, yeah, I, I know, Luke. Yeah, yeah. And then he goes, if you were standing up here and talking to all these people, you would be really, really nervous, wouldn't you? And like, all right, Luke, the tour's over. <clears throat> Let's go back to the chapel. Um, what is, what is a great church? And how do you just, how do you define a great church? So this morning, we're going to look at six marks of a great church. And as we all know, the church is not the building. The church is the people. And so uh, we can look at our own lives and take a little inventory here and say, do these characteristics mark my life? And so let's, uh, let's jump into Acts chapter 4. And uh, I'm not going to read 23 through uh, 31, but when Peter and John are released from prison, they go back to their group of believers and what do they start doing? They start praying. And uh, they're praying. They're thankful that they got released from prison. Uh, they're praying for boldness and sharing the gospel. And then uh, verse 31, and this is our first mark of a great church, a great church recognizes its power sources. A great church recognizes its power sources. And I'm going to suggest there's three. And here's the first one. Uh, the first one is prayer. Look at verse 31, and uh, it's also found in, in really this whole passage, 23 through uh, verse 30, is, is a prayer that they prayed. 
Uh, they prayed to God's sovereign Lord, uh, verse 24, and it says, after they prayed. And so what characterized that early church, and it's found in Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to prayer. They devoted themselves to prayer. And their prayers were bold, as, as we're going to see. Um, these apostles were told, hey, don't speak about Jesus anymore, and they boldly kept proclaiming Jesus and the resurrection. They prayed with great boldness. And so what marks a great church is prayer. And that's all through the New Testament, isn't it? Uh, what's First Thessalonians? They pray without ceasing. That we need to constantly be in a mindset of communication with God. And, and prayer needs to be an essential part of our life. James says the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And so a power source is prayer uh, that characterizes the early church. Well, second power source is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. We just looked at Acts chapter 2 briefly. Uh, what was the birth of the church? The birth of the church now was that the Holy Spirit would come, and now believers would have the Holy Spirit, what, living inside of them. He would indwell the, the, the believers. And so if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, the, the Spirit of God lives within you. Paul writes to the Corinthians, what, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have of God? And so uh, the, the power of the Holy Spirit, and this is what Jesus said, don't leave Jerusalem, I want you to wait here, and uh, wait here for what? The, the Holy Spirit, but you shall receive what? Power when the Holy Spirit comes. And it's not just the power of salvation, but it's the power to live the Christian life. Because if we're trying to live the Christian life in our own strength and ability, it's not going to go very well. But God has given us the Holy Spirit, and he's our counselor, and he's our teacher, and he is the one who empowers us. Ephesians 5.18, keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. That's an imperative. And so it's not a matter of getting more of the Holy Spirit. Paul says it's a matter of allowing the Holy Spirit to have more of you. As I heard in the message this last week about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not given to be explained. We have all our theology, and yes, he's the third person of the Trinity, but the Holy Spirit is given to be experienced. He's a person who lives within us. And we need to keep on being influenced and filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, the third power source is the Word of God. The Word of God. So a great church recognizes its power source. It's, it's prayer. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the power of the Word of God, as Paul quote writes in Romans 116, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's what the power of God into salvation. It has the power to change our lives. It has the power to transform us. Uh, Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. And so how does life change happen? When the Holy Spirit takes the Word of God and convicts our hearts and, and uh, transforms our life. 
And so a great church recognizes its power sources, prayer, the Holy Spirit, and the Word of God. But secondly, in, in the text here, a mark of a great church is unity, unity, or oneness. Uh, verse 32 says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. All the believers were one in heart and mind. That speaks of unity. There are two types of unity in, in the scriptures. There's positional unity. And positional unity means we're all part of the body of Christ if we know Christ as our Savior. The baptism of the Spirit is simply that when we receive Christ as Savior, the Holy Spirit like places us into the universal body of Christ. And so uh, the Apostle Paul, writing to the uh, Galatian believers um, in Galatians chapter 3, says, um, For all of you were baptized with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, nor slave nor free, nor male nor female, for you are all what? One in Christ. Ephesians chapter 4, there's one body, one spirit, one, uh, as you were called, the one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. So this is our unity. We're all part of the body of Christ. That's positional unity. But what also marks a great church is practical unity. And this is where the rubber meets the road. That um, it's all a matter of of being one heart, one mind, one focus, realizing what the body of Christ is all about, what the focus is. Uh, You've heard the poem, uh, perhaps, in the past, that goes like uh, this. Oh, to live in heaven above with those we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live on earth below with those we know, well, that's a little different story. And uh, sometimes it's hard to get along with other people. But there's practical unity, and this is the plea of the, of the scriptures of, of the New Testament. Um, Psalm 133, verse 1, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. So when there's oneness of heart, oneness of mind, oneness of mission, we live together in unity. Now, there was a couple of uh, ladies, actually, in the church at Philippi where, where Paul writes to the Philippians. He says, I need you to uh, beseech and talk to Yodia and Syntyche and have them get along. Uh, they, they weren't getting along and there, were, there was a conflict within, within the church. I really think the key to, to unity and this practical unity in um, the scriptures is found in Philippians chapter 2 when it talks about the mind of Christ. And so Paul says, I want you to have the same attitude as Jesus did. And he begins to describe it in Philippians 2. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, have the same love, being one in spirit and mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. It's all about me. Or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. And then it says, in your relationships with one another, have the mindset of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to describe that in the next six verses. Paul's talking about humility. Paul's talking about valuing others and what they're experiencing 
above your own desires. And once people have a mindset of it's my way or the highway, that's where conflict begins to happen. And sometimes we make secondary issues the primary issue, and then conflict happens within a church body. Well, Paul says in the, the early church that they were marked by unity. They all had one mind, one heart, and one purpose. Well, thirdly, here's a third mark of, of, a, of a great church. Stewardship and sharing. The last part of verse 32. No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had. No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own. That's stewardship. Uh, somewhere along the line in our materialistic world as believers, our, our mind needs to be transformed, Romans 12, 1 and 2, to realize that God owns everything. And we're what? Stewards. We're managers of what God has blessed us with. And so they had this recognition that my possessions ultimately don't belong to me, but I'm simply to be a manager a steward of what God has entrusted to me. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 8 when the nation of Israel was about ready to go into the promised land. They were going from a nomadic life of wilderness wanderings for 40 years now to the, the land flowing with milk and honey and they were going to start to enjoy the good life, houses they didn't build, uh, the fruit that is there and uh, they were going to enjoy things and God gives uh, a warning to them, don't forget God. When, when you're blessed, don't forget God. And um, he, he gives us this reminder about remembering God. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, it is he who gives you the ability to what? To produce wealth. Who gave you the ability to wake up this morning? God did. Who gave you the ability to uh, to work with your hands and to use your brain and to uh, be able to work and to produce income and wealth? God did. And so don't forget God, that God owns it all. And as they realized that, that they were simply to be stewards of what God has blessed them with, it says they shared everything they had. They shared everything they had. They shared their possessions. They shared their meals. They shared praise. They shared worship. They shared ice cream. They shared fellowship. They shared everything. That was the third mark of the early church. And Hebrews thirteen sixteen, the author of Hebrews, reminds us um, with these words, Hebrews 13, 16, do not forget to do good and to share with others for such sacrifices God is well pleased. Don't forget to share. Well, there's a fourth characteristic of marks of a great church, and it's found in verse 33. It's the powerful proclamation of the gospel. <clears throat> the powerful proclamation of the gospel. It says in verse 33, with great power. The apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. 
So here it is. Uh, what's the gospel? It's described in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And what marked the early church and what marks a great church is the powerful proclamation of the gospel. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it's all through the book of Acts. Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost. There's thousands of people gather around, and he begins to proclaim, let me explain what's happening here with the coming of the Holy Spirit. And here's what he says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Peter's not pulling any punches here. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep his hold on him. So he's reminding those that have gathered for Pentecost what happened six weeks ago. Jesus died, was buried, but death could not hold him. It was impossible for the Son of God to stay in the grave. And on the third day, he rose again, the newness of life. That's the same message that they proclaimed to uh, the crowd in Acts chapter 3. Um, you know, first of all, to the, to the lame beggar that needed healing and needed salvation, Peter said, silver or gold I don't have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And then when Peter explained how that happened, he shares what? A powerful proclamation of the gospel. Here's Peter and John now before the Sanhedrin, Acts chapter 4, verses 8 through 12. Now he's talking to the, uh, the religious leaders, the equivalent of the Supreme Court of the day. The Sanhedrin was made up of 70 religious leaders with the chief priest being the head. They've called him on the carpet because of the miracle that they did. And then it says, Peter stands up and he says, Know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands healed before you. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. What marked the first few chapters of Acts and the early church, it is the powerful proclamation of the gospel, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. There is salvation in no one else but Jesus. And that proclamation in a great church not only needs to come from the pulpit, but it come, needs to come from the pew as well. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, that God has given to us as believers a ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And then he talks about the gospel. Here, it's probably maybe the best, clearest summary of the gospel, maybe besides 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that in him, when we put our trust in him, we might become the righteousness of God. As Andy Stanley asked the question in a book he wrote about 10 years ago, how good do you have to be to get to heaven? The answer to that question is you have to be perfect because God is holy. And therefore we all have a problem. 
And that's why Jesus came. And when we put our faith and trust in him and his shed blood on the cross as, as payment for our sins, then his perfection gets credited to our account. The doctrine of justification positionally, then when God looks at us, he looks at us just as if we'd never sinned. He sees the righteousness and the perfection of Christ. And we have our entrance ticket to heaven. It's Jesus. So the powerful proclamation of the gospel, it's all about Jesus. Here's the fourth, uh, or the fifth mark, rather, of, of a great church. Sacrificial giving to meet the needs of others. Sacrificial giving to meet the needs of others. The last part of verse 33. And God's grace was so powerfully at work among them that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the feet of the apostles and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Did you catch that phrase in the early church that said there were no needy people? Because the early church met the needs through the body of Christ. They not only shared their possessions, um, but they sometimes sold their possessions to meet the need of somebody within the body of Christ. Now, I think as you look at Scripture and, and meeting needs, I think there's three lines of defenses here that the Bible talks about. Uh, first of all, God has given us the ability to work, to work. Um, part of being created in the image of God is that God created us with uh, the ability to work. And uh, sometimes we misread uh, in the book of Genesis, we think that um, man fell and then part of, part of the fall of man was he was given work. No, God gave Adam and Eve assignment before they fell. They were in charge of the garden. Work just became harder after the fall. And so how do we meet needs? Well, uh, the first line of defense to meet needs is work. And there's, there's dignity in work because we've been created in the image of God. So here's what Paul writes to the Thessalonian believers. He says, you yourselves know how we ought, you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, Paul was a tent maker, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. If you have the ability to work and, you, and, and you're not willing to work, then, then perhaps you shouldn't eat. Um, God's given us work. That's the first line of defense to meet needs. Um, but we know that sometimes because of various reasons, physical reasons, the economy, um, one of the hardest positions to be in is to want to work and have the ability to work and you don't have a job. And so there's a second line of defense when that, when that happens to, to uh, meet needs. And I think it's found in 1 Timothy chapter 5, 
where Paul's writing to Timothy, who's a pastor in Ephesus. And um, here's what he has to say. And this is passage talks about a widow's list. It says, give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn first of all to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents for this is pleasing to God. What a great verse, especially if you have kids or grandkids. All right, time to pay me back. (laughs) You need to take care of me. And so there's a, there's a second line of defense here, and when there are needs, then Paul says the first line of responsibility is your own family, your extended family, that needs to pitch in and help out and care for those needs. But in a case where that's not possible, there's another avenue that God has provided to meet needs, and that's the church, the body of Christ. And so that's why Paul's writing 1 Timothy 5, because um, they had something called the widow's list. And the widow's list is who are the widows who qualify to be supported by the church. And there's all sorts of qualifications. You have to be 60 years or older. Um, You have to have good character. And, And they kept this list, and if you qualified, then... They were, they were taking care of all of your needs. Um, Acts chapter 6, we'll see when we get a little further on into Acts. Uh, what, was, uh, what was the early church doing? They probably had the first Meals on Wheels program. They were taking meals to widows and to needy people. And it got so big that the apostles said, hey, we need some help doing this. And so they elect seven men and, uh, called the first deacons. And they took over this ministry and the apostles said that we need to devote ourselves to the word of God and prayer. But what were they doing? They were meeting the needs of individuals. And so what characterized uh, the early church and a great church? Sacrificial giving to meet the needs of others. And so in our church, we have something called a benevolent fund. And it's specifically designed to help meet the needs of someone who has a need. And uh, that's, that's what a church does. I think it's one of the benefits of belonging to a church. I can't tell you how many times over the years, I, you know, any pastor would testify to this. You get phone calls out of the blue, uh, people showing up, coming to the church. You don't know them from, you never met them before. And then they'd, they'd tell you this story and how they have needs and they need money. And um, then you have to discern, discern like, is this fellow telling the truth? And, um, and, and so uh, we, we try to be generous beyond the benefit of a doubt, but you also know there's people out there that, that are just trying to scam you. And uh, one of the things I'd like to say to them is like, well, you know what? If you were part of a church family, <laughs> you wouldn't have to be going through the, the phone book, calling different churches or driving around from church to church asking for help because a biblical church family will care for you. And meet your needs. So much so that they were selling lands and houses and putting at the feet of the apostles to meet needs. Well, <clears throat> there's one last one from Acts chapter 4, Marks of a Great Church. And uh, it's found in the last couple verses of Acts chapter 4. 
And it's all about a man by the name of Barnabas. It says, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas. So they gave him a nickname. Uh, We're going to call you, instead of calling you Joseph, we're going to call you Barnabas. And Barnabas means encourager or son of encouragement, as the text says. What did Joseph do or Barnabas do? It says he sold a field that he owned, and he brought the money, and he put it at the apostles' feet. So the last mark number six of a a great church is uh, that encouragement Encouragement is a regular practice. That uh, the body of Christ encourages one another, and certainly uh, Joseph is a and Barnabas is a role model here. In fact, we read about him three times in the New Testament. Every time we read about Barnabas, he's encouraging somebody. Here he sells a piece of property and gives it to the church, and they distribute it to meet needs. Uh, later on in Acts chapter 9, after Saul is converted and he begins preaching and he tries to uh, join with the other disciples and that other disciples in the church are saying, hey, we're, we know about you. You're the persecutor of the church. And we're not, we're not sure your life has been changed. And so Barnabas came alongside Saul and mentored him and testified to the believers on behalf of the fact that Saul, the great persecutor of the church, life was now transformed. The third time we read about him is in Acts chapter 11, and he's sent to the church at Antioch to encourage and strengthen the church. So every time we read about Barnabas, he's, he's in, encouraging. In fact, that's what his name means. And so one of our um, one another phrases, and there's really 12 of them that characterize the body of Christ in the New Testament is that we are to what? Encourage one another. In fact, Hebrews 3.13 says, encourage one another daily. Uh, I think there's some tools of encouragement, and we're going to wrap this up here very, very quickly. Um, How can we encourage one another? Um, Here's some tools of encouragement. Number one, a listening ear. Uh, James 1.19 says we need to be uh, quick to listen. And uh, when we want to encourage somebody, um, we need to be good listeners, don't we? And most of us, that doesn't come naturally. Um, most of us would rather talk rather than listen. But it's important to listen, to give a listening ear. I... Uh, can recall some instances where someone's um, come into my office and wanted to share a burden, and uh, they uh, tell me what's going on in their life and just share for about 20 minutes, and then uh, I really don't say much, and uh, maybe we have a word of prayer, and they're like, well, thank you for encouraging me so much. I'm like, I didn't do anything. I listened. Um, so a listening ear is key to encouragement. How about words? Proverbs says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. And we can use our words to uh, uplift and encourage, or our words can be used to tear other people down. And James 1 says, no man can control the tongue. Again, this is where we need the help of the Holy Spirit don't we, in our life, to help put a governor on our tongue. <clears throat> The psalmist prayed in the psalms, keep a watch before my lips, O Lord. 
Uh, I love the little acrostic, uh, think before you speak. See if I can remember this. Is it true? Is it helpful? Is it inspiring? Is it necessary? Is it kind? If it is, then go ahead and say it. But uh, we need to use our words to encourage one another. It doesn't cost anything. Words can give life or words can tear down. How about the encouragement of God's word? First Thessalonians 4 talks about the resurrection and our hope in heaven and uh, the return of Christ. And then Paul says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Uh, the encouragement of the truth of Scripture. How about the encouragement of prayer? The powerful words and the follow-through. I am praying for you. If you have some people that are prayer warriors for you, you are blessed. And that's how we can encourage one another is, is uh, by praying by praying for each other. Uh, sometimes it's a helping hand. Ecclesiastes 4, verses 9 through 12, talks about two are better than one. There's a better return for their labor. And uh, so sometimes uh, the encouragement is, uh, hey, you need some help with that project? I'm free on Saturday. <laughs> and uh, that's how we can encourage just in a very, very practical way, uh, the encouragement of, uh, of meeting needs and of finances, uh, as that's, that's what Barnabas did in First uh, John chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Here's what the Apostle John writes. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no compassion on them, How can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. And so sometimes the encouragement is is a financial encouragement to meet the needs of others, as the early church was doing. Well, how do you define a great church? Not necessarily by bodies, buildings, and bucks. But there's six characteristics that need to mark a church and need to mark our lives. And as a great church, recognize its power source, its prayer, the Spirit of God, the Word of God. A great church, there's harmony and there's oneness and there's unity and everybody is, is pulling in the same direction and it's the acrostic team. Together, each accomplishes more for the gospel and for the kingdom. Great church is recognized by stewardship. We don't own anything. God owns it all. We share to meet the needs of others. It's marked by the powerful proclamation of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Neither is there salvation in any other but Jesus. It's marked by sacrificial giving to meet the needs of others. And it's marked by encouragement. It's my prayer that those will mark your life, in my life, and the life of our church. Let's, uh, let's pray together, shall we? Lord, we're reminded this morning that the church is not the building. The church is the people. And Lord, uh, I just uh, thank you for this uh, short passage in Acts chapter 4 that uh, reminds us of some marks of a great church and marks of a great believer. Lord, I pray that you would remind us 
Lord, perhaps forgive us for trying to live the Christian life in our own strength. For trying to try harder or trying to do some self-improvement program that just sets us up for more failure. But Lord, I pray that we would recognize uh, there's, there's power in prayer and there's power in the Spirit of God that enables us to not walk in the flesh, but to walk in the Spirit and to evidence the fruit of the Spirit in our life. Thank you for the power of the Word of God and the Gospel. Lord, I pray that uh, we would experience in not only just the positional unity, but we'll experience a harmony and oneness in the body of Christ. Lord, help us to be reminded that you own it all, and we're stewards who will have to give an account of our stewardship to you someday. And then, Lord, we pray that you would give us the boldness like the apostles had in that first century to boldly proclaim the gospel, not only from the pulpit, but outside these walls, to a lost and hurting world and a confused world that needs to know that Jesus is the answer and Jesus is the way. And then, Lord, we pray that uh, we would uh, encourage one another this morning. Lord, help us to have the mind of Christ. Help us to be good listeners. Help us to think of practical ways we can love one another and encourage one another. And we will give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm going to ask you to stand, and we're actually not going to sing this song, but we're going to read uh, 287. They're great words. It's a, our God has made us one. And um, if you'll read these words with me in unison, and then uh, we're just going to sing a cappella, a little chorus that uh, I think you're familiar with, Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. So uh, let's read these words as our, our prayer and our affirmation uh, together this morning. Our God has made us one, in him our hearts unite. When we, his children, share his love, our joy is his delight. Our God has made us one, his glory is displayed. For as we build each other up, our love becomes his praise. Our God has made us one, in sorrow and in joy. We share the cross of Christ our Lord. In him we now rejoice. Our God has made us one, one church to bear his name, one body and one bride of Christ, and with him we shall reign. I hope you know the chorus, Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. Um, let's uh, sing that together. I'll help you with the words if you need it, but uh, let's sing this as our prayer. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. Melt me, mold me, melt me, mold me. Fill me, use me, fill me, use me. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. 
I think I heard him there for a minute. A little vibration going on there. Maybe that was the spirit. I hope that's your prayer. Let's, let's pray together. Lord, uh, that is our prayer, that uh, we would not just um, be able to explain the Spirit of God theologically and realize that he indwells within us, but may we experience the, the filling of the Spirit. You're our guide. You're our teacher. Lord, may you um, lead and guide and direct us as we um, continue to live a life that is pleasing to you. So help us to be in tune to your spirit. Lord, help us to encourage one another. Lord, thank you for um, the gift of your word. Thank you for the power sources that you've given us. Lord, help us to tap into those uh, this week. And Lord, we will give you all the praise for all that you're doing and will do in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.